welcome everyone to Science Society and of course a special welcome to you Alessandro it's such a honor and you know it's such a pleasure also having you here that you took time to share your research with us um, so yeah and to make the account here and everything so uh, we really appreciate it thank you so much uh, thank you for the invitation Great, and um, so that everyone gets to know you a little bit, um, Dr. Alessandro Yelpi, I hope I said the name correctly. Perfect, perfect. <laughs> He's an assistant professor at geomorphology at, um, at uh, the University of British Columbia and the uh, Okanagan campus in Silix, Okanagan National Nation Territory and um, Alessandro you did your PhD at the University of Siena and before you had the appointment um, you were at the NSERC research you were research fellow there mm -hmm. um, till 2015 and a faculty member at Lorian Xian University. Um, so, yeah, if you could tell us a little bit about like your path to become a scientist, um, how did you discover like this passion or, you know, this affinity for science? Was it like a childhood dream or maybe did you go on a field trip or a museum or? or family member or teacher that kind of sparked your interest. Thank you. Yeah, well, first of all, thanks. Thanks very much for the invitation. I'm very happy to speak here. Um, it, I'm, I'm originally from Italy and uh, Italy, if you're familiar a little bit with the geography, um, it's a country that is largely mountainous. Like most people live around the coast and uh, in the central Paw Valley, but uh, large parts of the countries, the Alps and the Apennines that form the backbone are, are really um, made up of mountains, right? And uh, I've always had fascination for mountainous landscapes. And so since I was a kid, I spent a lot of time hiking and, uh, and trekking up the mountains. And um, it was really when I finished high school in 2003 that I, I sort of like had to decide what to do with my life. And uh, I, I sort of like made the snap decision that I was just going to go in uh, geology because, you know, I, I thought that this passion that I had for the landscape, you know, it was something that I should have uh, capitalized upon. And uh, I fell in love with uh, geology and specifically with the um, part of geology that deals with this, the processes that act at the surface of the earth. So the processes that over various timescales account for the evolution of the landscape, mountain building, erosion. And uh, I came to the realization that many of those processes are mediated by rivers so if, if you think about it rivers are you know the arteries of the land they they move uh, water from from the mountains to the ocean 
So they're a critical component of the hydrological cycle and together with water they move sediment, organic matter, and there's really a, a multitude of ways to describe river networks and, and um, the ways that they help or mediate in, in shaping the landscape. So that's what, uh, that's what led me to, to, to where I am now to study, study rivers and, and how they sculpt the landscape. Yeah, thank you for sharing that. And I can imagine because I, you know, I, um, we used to go uh, to Switzerland in spring and also in autumn sometimes. And the rivers are really, and also the lakes um, in the mountains, they're really beautiful and very yeah. different from each other. You know, some are very, very wild and so and large and small. And so I can imagine that this kind of is a really interesting environment to kind of become interested and, and ask questions. Um, so it's, yeah, I think it's really interesting. And also to, to think of how kids grow up today a lot of times that they don't have this exposure to the natural environment as much. Um, so it's kind of really important to preserve it. So also that our intelligence gets kind of, <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> of you know, our natural uh, questioning and interests um, doesn't die. Uh, do, do you agree that this is important? For oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Indeed. Yes, it was. It was central to to my development as a scientist. The fact that I was raised in uh, in a, on a farm, and uh, you know, we were surrounded by woodland. So even if even if it wasn't a vacation, I would I would still on a day to day basis just uh, be exposed to the uh, to the environment, and that especially for you know, especially for natural scientists, be it geologists or chemists or physicists, the exposure to the to the country is uh, fundamental. Yeah, yeah, that's that's wonderful. It was always my dream. So we had friends that had the farm, so we would spend you know a lot of times as a kid there and and help out there and. Um, so, yeah, I, I love that. This was my dream to one day live like that. And now I live in a huge city, <laughs> but still love it. So it's kind of interesting that this is repeating. So, yeah, I'm so glad that um, that you shared the story. And uh, maybe one day you share some pictures of the farm. <laughs> yes. <laughs> that would be really great. Yes. And, um and then from there, how how did you then start working on this project? You know, the Arctic is, is very far away. Yeah. <laughs> so how did you become interested and end up working on this project? Thank you. Yeah, I, I was, um, the, the opportunity arose when uh, I was in the late part of my PhD. So, um, my PhD was with the University of Siena in Italy, and um, I wanted to 
spend some time in um, in another country just to to gather experience, learn another language, uh, broaden the the size of my collaborative network of researchers, and uh, so that that started as a something that was supposed to be a four month visiting period uh, at Dalhousie University in um, in Halifax in Nova Scotia and uh, you know then you know the, there's personal aspects but uh, you know long story short I I ended up immigrating to Canada and um, towards the end of the PhD I just wanted to um, apply the um, the research expertise that I have matured to something that was, you know, absolutely, absolutely wild and unspoiled and pristine in terms of landscape. The, uh, you know, the, one of the larger challenges that we face as uh, natural scientists and especially as landscape scientists is that um, most data on landscape processes comes from areas that are densely populated, right? Because that's that's when that's where you have investment from from governments and investment from uh, from research councils because they they want to see research produced in a manner that is relevant to the broader population, right? Which is which is fair, but. The uh, issue is that those areas that are densely populated are also those areas where the anthropic impacts um, make it very hard to understand how the landscape would have worked in itself without humans around. So as, as a landscape scientist, I've been always attracted towards areas that are pristine and remote that, that don't have infrastructures, you know, in, uh, in, uh, in Northern Canada, you know, you have, you have, uh, a country that, uh, is the largest country on earth by surface area, but the, the Northern part of, of the country, specifically the Arctic has a population of probably less than a hundred thousand people, right? So a, a few neighborhoods, a few neighborhoods in New York, and and you have thousands and thousands of square kilometers with entire watersheds that do not have roads. They don't have anything, no no development whatsoever. So those are the areas that, to me, naturally I feel is the most attractive because they they are truly pristine and. Uh, Truly, you can study landscape processes without being worried of, you know, having to disentangle human contributions from from the actual natural contributions to the landscape. Yeah, um, that um, that's really interesting. That you know, you were still at the time where this is possible to do because i think we are at the brink of time do you think we are at the brink of time where there will be nowhere a place to study a pristine environment anymore well i mean it, it depends it depends how you define pristine right so in if um 
you know, an area like the Arctic may may have no roads and uh, and no developments, but at the same time, just just like I'm I'm demonstrating in in this research that we're going to talk about today, it's still an area that is profoundly affected by um, you know far field uh, perturbations in in temperature and uh, and you know style of precipitation that is related to climate change. Uh, but in in a broader sense, I mean, yes, I mean the the even like the, the trajectories that even areas that have been historically wild and and untouched will will be you know progressively more and more developed. But um, I don't know. I think that when it when it comes to northern Canada, it's it's still going to be a matter of several several generations. Before, before the entire country gets developed. Well, I'm really glad to hear that, and um, thank you so much for sharing, you know, the story and the path to get to this research with us. And uh, it's really interesting to hear, um, to hear, you know, your personal approach and motivation to the research. So thank you for sharing that with us. And for everyone, the link to the slides are pinned on top of the room. Feel free to access them. And Alessandro, the stage is yours for uh, diving deep into your research. Thank you so much. Okay, thank you. Thank you. Um, so yes, um, you, you can uh, you can refer to the uh, slides that I've uploaded. Well, that <coughs> Katerina kindly, up kindly uploaded for me. And um, uh, I will refer to slide number. And uh, what I'm gonna talk about today is uh, a broad perspective on um, why we study river landscapes and what kind of signals of environmental change we can uh, glean out of uh, river landscapes and um, with a case study that is you know central to the presentation so the case study of the response of um, rivers in uh, in the north american arctic to ongoing climate change and then towards the end i will present also a few slides of outlook so sort of like now that we now that we discovered this where, where do we go and where is this research gonna gonna take us next? So on um, the, the first thing that I would like to acknowledge, if you go to slide number two, is uh, of course that uh, the campus that I'm uh, based at right now is situated on traditional and ancestral and ceded territory of the South Okanagan Nation, and you know with that come the comes the acknowledgement for their stewardship of the land and waters around us but also i would like to acknowledge that uh, most of the research that is conducted in uh, in northern canada by my research group is likewise uh, focused on areas that are in traditional and ancestral lands of a number of uh, of first nations and at the bottom of the slides you, you will see the uh, information if you want to know more about uh, this uh, ancestral and traditional lands. Um, so as I go into slide three, as I pointed out during the um, early part of, uh, of, of this meeting, 
Um, the motivation to study rivers is um, that they link uh, processes over a wide span of uh, spatial and temporal scales. So rivers are truly, um, you know, some have defined them the gutters of the land, some others have, have defined them as the arteries of the land. I, I prefer the analogy with, the, with arteries. But uh, indeed, they link um, processes of the, the planet Earth and uh, with, with life, with life on Earth. So, um, you know, an example uh, comes by just uh, looking at uh, uh, the basic biogeochemical processes that regulate the transfer of water and uh, organic carbon. So two things that are absolutely paramount to life on Earth. And uh, if you think about it, you immediately realize that these processes are taking place and vehiculated for, for the most part on continents through hydrological processes. So through processes that are organized and delivered by, by the global river network. And even if we look at uh, an individual watershed, like the watershed of the Yukon River, which is uh, reported on the on the right side of the slide, uh, you know this is this is one example of a continental scale watershed, and uh, uh, just to give you a few numbers, the Yukon passes uh, about sixty five hundred cubic meters of, of water every second, and with that water, there's seventy four teragrams of uh, of uh, suspended sediment of which about two is, is just dissolved organic carbon. So uh, in the entire watershed of the Yukon River, we have about 15 petagrams of organic carbon. So if, if we were to oxidize all of this organic carbon at once, we would increase by 2%, which is huge, the, um, the content of atmospheric carbon. So um, because of this, rivers really offer um, an excellent palimpsest to test a fundamental hypothesis. So that that uh, watershed disturbance, so alterations in physical properties like temperature and moisture, uh, can impact river processes and can impact the transfer of uh, uh, related to biogeochemical cycles such as that one of organic carbon therein. So today we, we're going to go, as I said, through three um, parts. So an introductory part that is just general slides for, for a broad audience on what a geomorphology looks into a watershed to read the main properties and, and characters of a river. Then we're going to have applications to the case of Arctic warming and then the outlook on what this brings about in terms of biogeochemical cascades. Um, a brief outline on river landscapes is shown in uh, slide four. Um, and this is really where we start, right? As a, as a fluvial geomorphologist, the first thing that you, you have to characterize in a watershed uh, is the domains that are pertaining to channels. So, um, you know, those conduits that transport water whenever 
water discharge is available, and the floodplains. And the floodplains are the vast lowlands that are very often colonized by, you know, farms or cities uh, on the sides of channels, and the, and the floodplains are only uh, active during overspill, so when we have exceptional floods. Um, channels can be described in a variety of ways. So there's, there's a number of ways to describe a channel. One can look at the regime of water discharge, so whether it's perennial, like there's constantly water flowing, or if it's ephemeral, so it only flooding every so often, like desert channels. They can be characterized in terms of geometry, uh, both in section, so width and depth, but also in platform. So how, you know, they, their geometric style from, from above, from a satellite imagery, like what, how many channels do they intertwine and, and are they sinuous or not? And through time, they can also be characterized based on how, how fast they, they migrate. So how fast they change their course from a, from a position to another. Um, and, and floodplains are also particularly important because floodplains is where soils develop. So where, where sediment that is deposited by the river over time, over decades and centuries, can evolve into a soil and, and grow, you know, forests or, or other or grasslands if left undisturbed. And so because of this, floodplains are really important from a geochemical perspective because that's that's where most of the uh, organic carbon that passes through a watershed is, is either stored for a period of time or is fixed through photosynthesis but before being eroded. Um, when looking at channels, you notice that the last point that I made in terms of how to classify them is lateral mobility, so migration. If we go and look at slide five, um, we can uh, provide this archetypal model of how channels that are left um, alone, so channels that are left free to migrate and evolve through time without being embanked or without being, you know, uh, modified by human activity, how they would evolve. And uh, there's really three processes that um, that take place. So there's there's migration, which is constant, takes place whenever the channel has enough water to uh, erode sediment on on an outer bank of, of a channel band and deposit it on on the on on an inner bank. Uh, but migration changes the shape of the river and changes the course of the river and sometimes migration can create very tight bands and when these bands they um, connect they cause a cutoff. So um, it's, it's, it's one of the fundamental processes of river evolution. The other one is called avulsion. And uh, avulsion refers instead to a sudden change in course and typically is caused by progressive filling. So the, the channel gets more and more filled with sediment and at some point it sort of like chokes itself on, on the sediment and is forced to, to carve a new path that is... Uh, that is free of sediment. So in other words, migration takes place continually and uh, every now and then, every you know, a few centuries cut off and avulsion um, 
interrupt migration locally. And um, I don't know if on the slides you have the capacity to see animations, but if you go to slide six, there's an example that is uh, taken from Google Earth, and it's, uh, it's a time lapse of the Ukayali River, which is uh, uh, one of the main uh, headwater tributaries in the Amazon basin. And um, a, a time lapse is derived over 32 years. And uh, this is a particularly active and particularly fast evolving river, but it's just showing that migration, avulsion, and cutoffs are processes that if one finds the right place can be observed over, over human time scales. Um, migration is something that is particularly important because as I explained, it's the main process that will erode and rework sediment uh, within, uh, within a floodplain. So in, in slide seven, you can see that there has been quite a bit of uh, research aimed at trying to model from a physical standpoint um, what migration entails and what pace um, takes. So, an example is provided from the Humboldt River, which is um, one of the largest rivers in uh, northern Nevada. It's also a particularly fast-flowing river and particularly important for hydrological resources in the, in the region. So what we do as geomorphologists interested in, uh, in the behavior of migrating rivers is that we have uh, photogrammetric uh, tools that allow to extract the positions of uh, channel banks at a given time. And we run algorithms that generate a center line, so a, a line that describes the average position uh, between the river banks. And then we overlap center lines and we have algorithms that automatically extract path lines of migration and conduct statistical analysis on uh, on the population of path lines. So when we conduct this type of analysis, one can uh, define a migration rate. So it's it's a distance, it's a velocity essentially. It's a distance over uh, that is covered by channel migration over a unit length of time. Can be measured in, in meters per year, for example. With most rivers, uh, you know, migrating a few tens of centimeters to a few meters per year. But um, it's important to note directly that larger rivers will migrate faster and smaller rivers will migrate slower. So um, a, an, a metric that is even more important than migration rate itself is a normalized migration rate with, this, with respect to the channel size. Uh, and this is the second formulation, the migration time scale. So this is a ratio between channel width and migration rate and essentially tells you how many years it'll take for a certain river to migrate its own width. And it's a way to sort of like make an analysis, uh, you know, normalized across river sizes. On uh, slide eight, uh, you can see it in, in uh, an example of a transect taken from uh, the previous slide with the river that has, um, that has uh, changed its course from 1994 to 2017. 
And you can see that there are areas where the banks have been progressively eroded. And on the other side of the river, there are banks that instead have grown. So it's important to establish a link between this physical process and the ecological processes that are related to it. Specifically, when you erode uh, in a forested region, when you erode an outer bank, you typically erode an area that may have um, reached climax in, stand, in, in terms of uh, the amount of organic carbon that is fixed in the soil. Whereas uh, on the inner bank, as the, as, as the inner bank grows through time, you typically observe uh, vegetation succession that goes from pioneer state to, um, to climax over a, few, over a few centuries. So in other words, this makes the point that channel migration not only reworks sediment in the floodplain, but also resets uh, the age of the vegetation cover in the floodplain. And through this, um, it's also very effective at modulating organic carbon fluxes through, the, uh, through a watershed. On uh, slide nine, we can dive a little deeper on what are the physical controls on river migration. So what are the controls that will make a river migrate, relatively speaking, faster or slower? And uh, this is important, um, as you will see in a few slides, because it's, uh, it's what, you know, uh, is particularly central to this kind of analysis that we conducted in, uh, in Northern Canada and Alaska. So, uh, Briefly, you know, big picture, there are three main factors that control the speed at which uh, a river bend will migrate. Um, one interesting, one is curvature itself. So one depends inherently on the shape of the channel bend at any given point in time, because uh, the curvier a channel, the higher it'll be the inertia of the flow impacting the outer bank. And that, of course, promotes more erosion on the outer bank. So curvature in itself is, is um, you know, inherent control on, uh, on, on migration. And um, it's the, the relationships between curvature and migration rates are rather complicated. They're not linear, but certainly higher curvature relates to faster migration rates. Um, then there's the erodibility on the outer bank. So that depends on the geotechnical properties of the material on the outer bank. Of course, if we're eroding a very loose sand that is not kept together by anything, uh, you know, erosion on the outer bank will be facilitated. Whereas if we erode stiff, um, cohesive clays with a lot of plant roots, binding it together, of course, that it's something that will slow down uh, migration. And then there's the pace at which sediment is available from upstream erosion to be deposited on the inner bank. And I've, uh, I've, uh, I'm showing that on slide nine with a plus. So um, over, over time, the channel sort of like needs to maintain its own width so for whatever unit of surface area that is eroded along the outer bank, there needs to be sediment that uh, 
is derived from upstream erosion that needs to be deposited on the inner bank to maintain channel width. So um, it has been shown that migration rate not only scales with erodibility on the outer bank, but also with the availability of sediment to replace on inner banks. So this, uh, moving on to slide nine, there's immediately a very important point that can be made. So I've, I've described curvature, uh, erosion, and deposition. Now, curvature, I said, it's something that is inherently a characteristic of uh, individual channel bands, but um, erodibility and availability of sediment is not. So uh, one can change the erodibility in the, of an outer bank or can change the amount of sediment that is available um, for deposition by changing physical properties in the in the watershed. So, um, you know, the, just taking a broad picture, looking generally at uh, what climate change is bringing in North America, you know, the, the changes are, are complex. We, we tend to think about higher temperature, for sure, but there's also uh, more complex changes that are related to the hydrology. So if you look on slide 10, on the right side, you will see that, you know, there's areas that are experiencing spring floods, areas that are experiencing more frequent rain and snow events, areas that are experiencing severe drought or increased susceptibility to flash floods or hurricanes or increased snow cover. So these are all processes that will severely influence uh, the vegetation structure in an area, right? If you, if you make an area um, more subject to severe drought, of course, that over decades, that area will, will, will witness a shift from uh, uh, moisture prone to desert prone plants, right? And, and this is just an example. And uh, the key is that uh, the amount of plants on the landscape, so the amount of vegetation, as I said, affects bank irritability, but it also affects the way that sediment is kept together. So uh, this is this is an indirect way in which climate change can affect bank irritability and, and sediment flux. And um, moving on to slide 11 and 12, we, we kept these guiding principles in mind and we tried to test the hypothesis that um, climate change was in fact changing the pace, the characteristic pace at which uh, rivers were migrating in the in the high Arctic. So on slide 12, you can see the um, the data set that we used for for our analysis. We we looked at uh, um, ten rivers, and uh, for each of these ten rivers, we looked at a reach that had very well developed meanders and. Um, and, and sinuous bands where one could track uh, changes in plant form over a period of about 50 years. So on the left, you have a false color composite of one of these rivers, the Kobuk. And uh, in the inset uh, lower, ref, uh, lower left corner, you can see how one example of bands uh, evolved from 1972 to 2002. Um, so we, we leveraged the uh, Lancet 
uh, archive, which uh, is an archive of satellite imagery that um, is the longest living that we have. The first Landsat satellite was, was launched in 1972. So it, it gives us about half a century now of, of coverage. Um, before, before diving into the results, it's important to understand broadly what is happening in uh, Alaska, the Yukon, and the Northwest Territories. So what is happening in, in, the, in these rivers that are the subject of this research? First of all, why, do, why did we look specifically at this um, region? Um, we looked specifically at this region because it's an area that um, is experiencing among the fastest rates of warming right now on Earth. So despite the entire planet is warming up, of course, there's regions that are warming up slowly, more slowly, and regions that are, you know, they have more sharper increase. And uh, if you want to look at an area that is really warming at one of the fastest rates, you, you're looking at Alaska, the Yukon, and the Northwest Territories. And uh, the other reason is that these are this is an area for which we have good baseline data on temperature, good baseline data on river discharge and mean precipitation. So notwithstanding is a very sparsely populated area, we have baseline data from, uh, from government agencies of what the climate and the hydrology of the rivers has been doing in the last, excuse me, in the last um, half century or so. So broadly speaking, I'm bringing here the example of the Tanana River, which is one of the uh, main tributaries of the Yukon. Um, on, on slide 13, you can see that um, temperature has been increasing, but it's interesting to note that if you look at the, the trend of the warmest, mean, and, and coldest temperatures throughout a year, indeed, the sharpest warming is observed when looking at the coldest. So the, the coldest temperatures have been increasing significantly over the last half century. Um, there is an increase in precipitation. So uh, generally speaking, not only we're looking at warmer climates, but also uh, wetter climate. So we have uh, more snow in the winter that will be available for uh, melt out during the summer months and during the summer months less sunny days and more more cloudy and rainy days and together these two trends have resulted in uh, um, um, an increase in uh, discharge so the river the rivers are passing more water per unit time but also they have an earlier freshet during the uh, the spring the freshet is the uh, the time of ice breakup and, uh, and and flood when most of the snow in the watershed um, melts away and, and gives rise to this flood wave. Uh, so as you can see, there's there's you know a few uh, facets to keep in mind. Um, we're not just we're not just looking at increasing temperature, but it's it's interesting to note what what metric of temperature increases the most and the uh, cascading effects on, uh, on river hydrology. In uh, slide 14, uh, 
you can see broadly the methodology that we applied. So this is uh, a slide that conceptually is somewhat similar to the one that I've already presented in uh, slide seven. So again, it shows the, the, the methodology that we've uh, adopted. We've taken uh, a selected river reach and uh, we've extracted uh, channel banks through, through uh, photogrammetry calculated with some uh, specific algorithms, a center line, and then we've compared center lines over time. And we've used an algorithm that is called dynamic time warping. It's, it's a little bit of a, little bit of a fancy name, <laughs> but uh, in, um, in, in simple terms, dynamic time warping, what it does is uh, shown graphically in the lower right corner of slide 14. So it just uh, compares two uh, time series and generates paths that uh, are considered the most likely in terms of migration. Um, we've applied dynamic time warping to all these uh, 10 rivers over a range of times from the 1970s to, to 2020, and uh, the results are shown in uh, slide 15. Now, this is interesting. Um, we started this project thinking that over time, the, the, uh, the rivers would have accelerated in, uh, in migration. So uh, we, we thought that permafrost, so the, the ice that is present in northern floodplains, we thought that permafrost was keeping together the banks. That was the hypothesis, not, not just our hypothesis, but hypothesis that sort of like being kept as the most likely in the scientific community for, for the past few years. And so under that scenario, if you melt out permafrost due to increase in temperature, you would have expected uh, higher erodibility of the banks and therefore faster migration rates. But interesting, we, 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 we observed exactly the opposite. So as uh, temperatures were increasing, the migration rate of the rivers were, were slowing down. Uh, and, uh, and you can see in, in the plot to the left that uh, you know, migration rate is plotted as a function of year. You can see that there's quite a bit of dispersion in the data. There's, there's a low R squared, but nonetheless, the trend is statistically significant. And um, it's interesting to note that uh, once we observed these results, we sort of like had the feeling that this was a, a vegetation story because vegetation is the other main control on, on bank erodibility. So we, uh, we, per each river, we calculated the slope of the linear regression and uh, we plotted that slope of the linear regression and migration rate over time as a function of change in normalized difference vegetation index. For those who are familiar a little bit with remote sensing and photogrammetry, uh, the normalized difference vegetation index is a ratio between uh, spectral bands that satellites can read from the landscape. And it's a metric that describes whether an area has uh, an increase or a decrease in vegetation coverage. So in other words, um, a positive number here on the, on the X 
on in the panel on the um, right of slide 15 would show that the landscape is so to speak greening so it's increasing in vegetation coverage whereas uh, a negative value would indicate browning and as you can see uh, this slide shows a clear pattern whereby rivers that are slowing down the most are those that have the highest increase in vegetation in their watershed and vice versa so rivers that are barely slowing or maybe even accelerating a little bit are rivers that uh, have increase decrease in vegetation um, in slide 16 um, i'm not going to spend too much time on this but just want to make the point that we've applied a number of filtering methodologies just to make sure that our uh, uh, photogrammetic results were not casual but, but uh, significant and you know every test that we applied for filtering methodology uh, was successful in demonstrating that you know the trend that we were observing was not casual was not an artifact of, of methodology but was truly observed um, we we tried to take it a step further just to uh, have another independent line of evidence that the results that we were observing were rooted in uh, a, a change in temperature and related effects on vegetation and by doing that we compared the migration rates in permafrost rivers to typical migration rates of rivers outside the permafrost uh, region so this is shown in, in slide 17 and the panel in to the left and to the right, you can see this normalized migration rate with respect to the typical, what you would typically expect for rivers outside the permafrost region as a function of median annual temperature. And again, this plot uh, describes a relationship between migration rate and temperature, whereby uh, rivers that have the slowest, uh, the, the, um, the slowest migration rate are those in uh, cold base colder based environments and and vice versa so again another line of evidence that suggests that migration rates were in fact controlled by temperature indirectly and possibly by vegetation um now um i said earlier in the presentation that um, migration rate scales with channel width and it's controlled by curvature so we applied um, another couple tests just to make sure that these two factors were not uh, you know bringing their own contribution to the results and as you can see uh, i'm not gonna go too much in detail here but if you look at the p's on the two uh, plots here you can see that both trends here are not statistically significant so we use that to rule out controls that were not uh, related to temperature so keeping this in mind we uh, developed a model whereby uh, in a pre-warming uh, state uh, we have rivers that function during seasonal thaw and uh, um, there's not a lot of vegetation because it's too cold for vegetation and uh, in this for vegetation to thrive and under this situation there's um, a relatively uh, high seepage 
of uh, water during the seasonal thaw from um, from the banks. So it, hydrology that is essentially an active layer hydrology uh, with only surface water and not a lot of groundwater in the system. And uh, in a warming state instead, uh, the main change is that um, you know, when, when you increase the temperature and you increase the availability of water, of course, shrubs and uh, other vegetation will uh, grow. This is something that has been uh, uh, documented independently by uh, a large amount of research in, in the Arctic. So it's, there's a consensus. So we hypothesize that the main effect is uh, bank strengthening by shrubs that are growing, but also Allied to that, there's a shift to groundwater hydrology, whereby most waters during the top, the seasonal top, move in the ground, and there's not a lot of seepage along the channel banks that may favor erosion. Now, this uh, moving on to slide 2021 and 2022. Um, now I'm moving on towards the the outlook of these results, and uh, I'm I'm gonna circle back to the fact that. Uh, um, channel migration has a demonstrated effect on uh, modulation of organic carbon in a floodplain. And um, in slide 2022, I, I decided to report um, some material from, uh, from a study that has been conducted recently by uh, Roman Walker and, uh, and, and colleagues, again in the Rio Ucayali, so again in the uh, headwaters of the of the Amazon basin, and it's a study that shows truly, truly in a beautiful way how uh, meander migration in a mature river can affect over time, modulate the amount of carbon that is fixed on a floodplain, eroded in a floodplain as vegetation evolves from uh, pioneer to climate states, and all in all, how this can. Uh, affect the flux of organic carbon to a watershed. So in slide 23, you can see um, a, a general introduction on how to look at fluxes of organic carbon through watershed. There are, there are a number of sources, you know, organic carbon can be just eroded from, uh, from rocks that stored it in, in the geological past, or it can be eroded from uh, uh, live material in the, um, like, you know, wood or, or soils in the watershed or on outer banks, but can also be uh, deposited during overspill. Some can be lost just through mineralization or oxidation. Uh, some can be fixed directly from the atmosphere as plants grow in the floodplain and some will just be eventually bypassed by through the aquatic continuum and delivered to the ocean. So as you can see, there's there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of uh, acting co-acting processes at play, but it's important to note that if you take a transect along an inner bank of a meander, uh, you can expect more or less predictable patterns with. Uh, with the soil maturation, as as is shown in um, on the right side of slide 23, you know, with variations on the team depending on whether more sediment, more organic carbon is uh, derived from petrogenic or biospheric sources, and depending on the primary productivity of the area. But 
you know, generally speaking, you can expect uh, predictable patterns. So again, this is um, an hypothesis that uh, comes from targeted studies in, in selected bioclimates, but is not being tested, um, you know, with with continental distribution. So what we're looking at now that we have this uh, uh, background study on how rivers respond to climate change is we're working on uh, constructing a data set that looks at amounts of total organic carbon in floodplains um, in, in various regions of the Canadian Arctic, uh, the boreal forest of North America in, in Ontario, and, and Mediterranean to uh, desert climates in the Western US with, with individual case studies that are being compiled. In slide 25, you can see some, some preliminary results. So again, this is uh, uh, translating from the you know theoretical palimpsest that are shown in slide 23 to, to collection of actual field data and, and what to expect. So as you can see, we have uh, three transects that were um, sampled along um, three sample rivers. The Yukon, uh, the, the Eagle River up in the Yukon is an example of a river flowing through continuous permafrost, the Sturgeon River, boreal forest outside the permafrost region, and the Amargosa River in California is an example from, from a desert hyper-arid setting. So as you can see, there's, there's uh, changes that are related to the primary productivity of the environment and how much will be derived from erosion in the watershed. But th the point is that over time, we hope to be able to collect this data and synthesize them in a, in a predictable model of organic carbon delivery in relation to river dynamics. Uh, specifically on, uh, on slide 26, you can see where are the guiding uh, hypothesis that, that are motivating the study. So in terms of what projected organic carbon dynamics we expect in response to Arctic warming, uh, if rivers are migrating more slowly, uh, vegetation on fluvial bars and floodplains should have more time to uh, grow, and that should uh, promote a, a larger amount of organic carbon fixation through photosynthesis which is something that we also expect under a scenario of warmer and wetter climate. So again, enhanced floodplain fixation. But at, this, at the same time, this will be probably counterbalanced by uh, some loss of organic carbon stock in floodplains simply because if we lose permafrost, again, we go from an hydrologic regime that is dominated by uh, surface waters to, to groundwaters. So um, in slide 27, just to summarize, I've, I've presented uh, how channel migration is a fundamental aspect uh, to consider when looking at the evolution of river systems. It can be applied to a situation of watershed disturbance. So whenever there's an external stress that is changing the physical properties in a, in a watershed, and this can be applied to understand how soil residents and organic carbon residents will change over time, which altogether can be summarized in, in models of sediment and organic carbon fluxes that can inform uh, budgets of uh, um, 
carbon dioxide uptake or release into the atmosphere. And what I talked today about was more, mostly focused on climate change, but this is in, indeed something that can also be applied to scenarios uh, of you know, watershed stresses due to other factors such as wildfires or, or uh, deforestation due to timber harvesting. And um, with that, on slide 28, I conclude. And of course, I would like to conclude with a, a word of thank you to my colleagues, uh, Mathieu, Alvise, and Pascal at the bottom of the slide and co-authors on the study, but also all the students, past and present, that have helped me in my research group and um, you know, have conducted their own little research uh, you know, in the broader uh, picture of the uh, mandate of my research group. So thank you. Thank you very much for listening. Yeah, thank you so much for for this wonderful presentation. Um, it's really, um, really interesting uh, research. And I, I, I never, I think, saw such a thorough um, explanation and uh, data uh, in, in this type of research. So it's really, you know, really impressive to look at and must have been really a lot of work <laughs> that you just yeah. shared with us. So I hope people appreciate the amount of work that uh, this, this, this is. So, um, yeah, I want to open it up for questions. Um, please raise your hand if you have questions or post them in the chat. And I'll just start um, with a few like general questions and then yeah, feel free everyone to participate. Um, it, so it's really interesting to see all these connections you made between, um, you know, between the different type of data you know, from the plant and, and different types of uh, roots to the shape and, um, you know, that then in the end um, leads to all these different um, outcomes of, you know, climate and probability of uh, wildfires and so on. Um, so do you think that um, based on your research, do you think there are different types of landscapes coming back to our initial research? It, it comes up more and more in my mind. Do you think that we have soon enough data that we could say this landscape would need kind of an intervention to make it more resilient? Or do you think we don't know enough yet? to do that like um like systematically maybe plant different types of plants or widening or narrowing of different rivers reshaping them because we think that they're you know, would turn them more resilient my my feeling well first of all this is more of a this is more of a question for a for a you know policymaker than a scientist but my, my so the answer that I give is very is very broad uh, but my feeling is that um, 
when it comes to landscape processes, there's still a lot that needs to be understood and, and needs to be learned. So the, um, the, the premise of, of many landscape scientists is that before, before we are in a position to um, try to fix it, something, we, we need to understand how it's working, right? And um, what I've shown is a set of uh, controls on river landscapes that are um, complex in themselves, and, and they're also uh, non-linearly correlated. So, uh, you know, a change in one parameter doesn't necessarily lead to a linear change in, in time. And, and these complexities indeed require um, a lot more research. But the, uh, and that's one guiding principle. The other guiding principle is that typically um, landscapes left to their own tend to um, restore themselves to the original balance state uh, surprisingly fast, <laughs> so that, that most times, rather than uh, you know pr promoting an intervention, the um, the best thing to do is just uh, you know eliminate the root cause of disturbance, and then just uh, just just let the landscape naturally readapt to its own uh, to its own original equilibrium. Yeah, thank you for pointing that out. Um, you know, it reminds me a little bit often of the data and um, publications surrounding Chernobyl. Yeah. That, you know, it, that nature bounced back pretty well. And yeah. we kind of know now that human is a way bigger stress factor than any radiation poisoning which is very depressing kind yes of. yes <laughs> <laughs> this is um yeah and then there was recently also an article uh, or a paper published about you know genome coping basically of different types of animals so yeah that is the perfect example of what you just said right just leave it alone and it will it will yeah. recover bounce back to its own pre-disturbing state yeah exactly and um the other thing that kind of i thought would be interesting is with changes um are you also considering for the future to analyze maybe soil and sediment data more in the microscopic area basically to you know there's a lot of talk about um, microbiome of different soils yes. yes is there you know also maybe data that could give us some hint of how well um an environment is doing if we would take samples do you think that would be helpful like maybe just a ph would be good enough i, I don't yeah. know how complicated yeah. you have to get to to analyze the health it's it is indeed like especially when we go into the realm of um 
soil biogeochemistry it is inherently a multiscalar process like you can't truly understand what is happening macroscopically if you don't understand what is happening at the microscopic scale um, and and indeed um, geochemistry analytical geochemistry is not my main expertise but it is the expertise of some of the colleagues that i work with uh, trying to tackle this problem so yes indeed we need to uh, we need to have a understanding of both the scale of the you know entire soil profile but also microscopically how metrics such as acidity uh, or you know availability of oxygen and nutrients are are changing and how they're affecting uh, fixation versus oxidation of organic carbon so yes indeed there is the need for also uh, approaches at the small scale Yeah, thank you so much. Kiko, did you want to go ahead and ask? Oh, I saw you're muted. Please go ahead. Yeah, real quick question. Um, so uh, it kind of sounds like like over time, like uh, these systems kind of adapt to like the change. But like uh, I just like heard about this like new study that's uh, trying to uh, that has the, the only way they can attribute like the change. And this has to do with like the change in the tilt of the planet uh, to the um, the amount of mass lost in the underground water system that hasn't got yes. so it changes like the, the distribution so it's kind of curious like in um situations like 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 comparing the two uh because it kind of sounds like sometimes it can heal but then sometimes like changes could like be way more global than uh we may have initially assumed uh so i'm kind of curious like when, it, when you look at these systems um does the the location where you did it because I can't imagine there's a lot of people, if it's not a highly populated area, that there's a lot of people uh, utilizing these like underground like water systems. You know what I'm saying? Like, uh, do you think that could like change the results if you're going to do like, um, uh, take the same like kinds of data from somewhere more populated? Indeed, indeed, yes. Um, as, as, I, as I pointed out right at the beginning, um, the, um, my, my fascination for the Arctic is because it's an area where um, at least the direct impacts from uh, anthropic activity can be can be taken out of the equation and they can be, you know, this is something that leads to a simplification of the boundary conditions. But... Um, in the broader scale once I don't know if it's just me but I think you're in a matrix how the system behaves yeah um, Alessandro we have a hard time hearing you you cutting out um I don't know if the, your position maybe changed or something changed with your the internet complexity of of human intervention and see how things would change if if we... better now 
Uh, no. <laughs> wait, can you try again? Yeah. Uh, what, a, what about now? Yeah, now it's okay. better. But we, we didn't hear your answer. I'm really sorry. No, no, I apologize for that. It must have... Uh, I think that my my cell phone signal just went down a little bit. So, um, sorry, I'll, I'll just repeat briefly the, the answer. Um, the, what I, what I, what I said is that it goes back to the, uh, motivation to first look at these uh, environmental responses is in areas that do not have a lot of anthropic modification just so that we can understand how the landscape works uh, on its own at a basic level. And, and of course, the next logical step, once we have gained that understanding, would be to look instead at areas that are largely populated, where uh, indeed the contribution of humans can be factored in as well. So this should be taken as a, you know, as a pilot study where the contribution of humans, at least, you know, directly uh, has been taken out for simplicity. And then we could repeat this kind of analysis in an area that is instead largely populated. Yeah, yeah that's interesting. Are there landscapes that are kind of in between where there's very little human contribution and then more and more? Are there still, you know, the spectra of influences that you can basically add a few factors at a time yeah i mean there's um yeah there's there's a few ways to to look at it right you can you can uh, look at it spatially so um for a given point in time see if uh, there's a response it, it, it changes in response going across the gradient from a from a pristine to a heavily populated region but you can also look at the same problem temporally. So for a given site that maybe has undergone development significantly over 30, 40 years, see how the landscape has changed in response over that time span. Yeah, um, that's really interesting. Are there parts of your research that you could um, basically now that you have more data simulate like how it do you have a good model that can yeah. predict the future yeah we we are starting to we're starting to dabble with a few uh numerical models that are you know uh as as complex as they are mathematically they are still rudimentary in that uh, they cannot really account for 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 human intervention because uh, you know human intervention is so complex to model but uh yeah we we do have also um we do have also some some numerical simulations uh that that allow to understand spatial and temporal evolution of river landscapes yeah i got one more question um so is it possible to like uh, kind of take like, I guess the frame of thought that you used uh, in acquiring the data for uh, what you did already towards systems where the uh, the water system didn't recover? Because you know, like there's like places where it used to be an extensive like river yes. and it just dried out. Yes. 
Um, it, it's something that can be can be applied very successfully to areas that are recovering from wildfires. So, um, you know, in, in this case that I presented, we're looking at very slow and continual change that took place for several decades. Um, you know, in the, the example of climate warming in the Arctic, but but um, to understand how an area would recover from from these stresses, um, a really topical example is just to look at a watershed that has maybe burned down 20, 30 years ago and 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 has been left untouched since and see how vegetation has slowly grown back and how that recovery has affected um, hydrological processes in the watershed. So uh, it's something that definitely can be done, but it's best applied where you have like a really semi, like essentially instantaneous perturbation. Like in, you know, in, in, in landscape terms, a wildfire is an instantaneous event. And then see how it recovered in, in over, a, over a span of a few decades afterward. So it's definitely an interesting consideration and, and can, be, can be applied successfully. What about uh, uh, systems where the main culprit itself is global warming? Yeah, the, the problem with global warming is that it's slow. And like, sorry, I, I don't mean to say that it's slow in general. Like in, indeed, it's it's progressing at an alarming pace, uh, if you wish. But um, it's global warming. It's something that um, you know we as a as a race started few centuries ago and it and it's building up decade after decade with a lot of momentum uh, and incrementally so it's something that um, poses some challenges in terms of of climate modeling because um, you know in, in in the case of my study we have 50 years of satellite imagery but really, I would have appreciated to have like three centuries of, 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 of satellite imagery at hand, which of course is not possible. Um, so that's, that's the challenge. It's, it's, it's indeed happening and it's indeed fast, but compared to the, um, compared to the availability of, of satellite data, it, it's still something too big to fully understand, at least in terms of responses on the landscape. Thanks. That's that's a tough thing to, to swallow. Yes. It's like like we because of the, the the speed of which it's changed in such a short amount of time that we can't really approximate like the actual changes <laughs> because of how fast it's happening and how slow the actual process is. That's 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 yeah. interesting. Thank you. So what would be about um, like really ancient data, you know, with geographical, I don't know if it would be available, but basically would there be um, satellite imaging or some sort of imaging that archaeologists are using to kind of discover historic sites, basically to go back in time and how the rivers 
were shaped hundreds, maybe even thousands of yeah. years ago, and but make assumptions. There, there are some. There are some resources that can be looked at, like historical maps, but typically they do not offer, like, the, first thing, they're very rare, and, and B, they don't offer, like, the sufficient precision. So if one wants to look at environmental responses to a disturbance over a scale of centuries or perhaps even thousands of years, like, it's best to, like, maybe recover um sediment cores from like lake bottoms or or you know ice cores from from glaciers um but at that point you are in the um in the realm of geochemistry and you are looking at a record that can be linked to landscape processes but only indirectly whereas you know with with satellite imagery you're looking at a direct you know uh, record direct data so it's it's a it's a trade-off you can go further back in time indeed but you you will lose a direct link and and therefore you will lose resolution whereas... I, hope, I hope there ain't no motherfucking transgenders here excuse me oh i'm so sorry <laughs> i let the person up that raised the hand but apparently it was like a, just a account to disturb people you know this happens on social media i'm sorry about that are you still there Alessandra? yes yes i'm still here yeah sorry. yeah i'm sorry that's okay. this happens there's not your fault about <laughs> accounts and so on that just are made to disturb things so <laughs> sorry usually this doesn't happen too often anymore but it still happens but um, Eric had the question, but you were still answering, so please go ahead. No, no, it was it was the end. It was the end of the um, of the answer. So the, the the to summarize, yes, there is um there is a trade off between resolution and an amount of time that uh, is integrated in the analysis. So, um, uh, uh, great presentation. Thank you so much. I, I think this is super, super interesting work as somebody who's looked at a lot of rivers and watch them flow. I'm, I'm always, it's like one of those eternal questions, like what's going on there? Um, a, a more just general question is that I, I sort of have this belief that and I don't know, this is not exactly your domain, but maybe you have some insight, is that I think that Alaska is facing some serious problems with fires in the coming 20 and 30 years. And um, do you have any insight on that? I, I guess it's a simple question. Um, yes, the... Um, the uh, the key to understand wildfire susceptibility in northern environments, I think it's uh, it's related to the change in um, in hydrology at the surface. So th this is something that I, I briefly touched upon 
in uh, when, when explaining the, the model in slides 19 and 20. So in permafrost environments, you have an active layer. So it's a layer that uh, freezes and melts uh, over uh, seasonally. And then below that, you have permanently frozen ground. So uh, typically in the summer, the active layer, especially in continuous permafrost regions, is waterlogged. Like it's very moist and it doesn't drain. Uh, and that is something that really prevents wildfires because the ground is com completely sogged and, and, you know, saturated with water, not very easy to set it on fire. But um, as, as permafrost taught progresses, of course, the, the, the thickness of the active layer increases because, you know, you will find permafrost at deeper deep and deeper depths down in the soil profile. And that means that the topsoil can become drier and drier. And, and uh, at that point, if you lose that water saturation, you are making the ground way more susceptible to fires. So uh, indeed, uh, looks like I'm not, uh, I'm not myself um, a wildfire scientist, but in, in the readings that I, that I have taken, like it seems that indeed we are projecting uh, an increase in uh, wildfire susceptibility in, um, in permafrost ground. I'm, I'm, not, I'm, not, I'm not sure if that went out. I, I didn't hear everything you said, but I heard a lot of it. <laughs> and what I heard was increased fire susceptibility. Yeah. Just so... You know those methane uh, burps that people talk about in the tundra? I guess tundra is a, a different ecosystem than rivers. It's more of like really flat, homogenous areas where rivers aren't. Is that the case? And then does any of this fit in with any of that tundra methane burps well, that they that's a concern? Rivers can... Rivers can... Uh flow to through tundra uh, ground that for sure um, in terms of methane emissions i am not i i am not sure like I'd, as in uh, i don't have the expertise to to answer that i know that there are uh, dynamics that are uh, critical to the understanding of climate change with respect to methane emissions in permafrost grounds but um, I do not have, I'm, I'm sorry, I do not have the expertise to, to comment on that. Thank you, you've been very excellent. Thank, thank you. you. Yeah, thank you. Oh, please go ahead. Real quick question. Um, so, like, I'm, one of the, the basic understandings I have of, like, kind of, like, certain Earth regions is that, like, certain regions I have, like, either more precipitation or uh, like more evaporation and those go along like certain like like um, uh, lines that go uh, horizontally around the globe. Um, so I'm kind of curious like in the areas that you um, took this data from, uh, were they prone to more precipitation or, or more evaporation and does that potentially have any effect on the results that you um, found? Yeah. the. Um... The general trend is that we're looking at an increase in precipitation, not just uh, not just an increase in temperature. So indeed, that 
affects the amount of volume. Uh, sorry, the volume the uh, a, a river is passing uh, in terms of water. So yeah, it's it's something to to consider in the um, in the balance of of migration rate analysis. Yeah, thank you so much. Um, I had um, one one question about. I was thinking about smaller streams, um, and to are there maybe differences, you know, that you could make assumptions of, um, the and you know how smaller streams over time change in different, um, in different regions based on increasing air temperatures and um yeah if if this data basically translates automatically to small mm, streams yeah there, there's the matter of scale there's the matter of scale for sure um so in in the study we made it very clear that we looked at uh large rivers only for a couple for a couple of reasons like the first reason is that large rivers are already re were already resolved in uh, old imagery from the 1970s that had like uh, you know coarser resolution so uh, we sort of like opted for this trade-off where we we wanted to look at something that it's only on, on a certain on a certain scale but uh, had a longer temporal record and the other important point is that larger rivers tend to like average signals from from large watersheds so they give you sort of like a landscape scale um, response uh, that being said we do not have data to uh, uh, confirm or disprove that the same results will apply to smaller rivers so it could be that in smaller rivers for example the the um, importance of permafrost in in strengthening riverbanks is higher, and uh, we we don't know that at this time. And we're conducting research to try to answer this aspect. But uh, yeah, for now it's uh, for now it's open. Yeah, thank you. And then one more, you know, I don't know if you observed maybe in the more recent data. A higher fluctuation of like river ice dynamics and how that impacts then you know the the plants or yeah. you know on the river beds and meander migration or if it's pretty stable still um based on so data. river ice you know these are as you point out these are rivers that froze during the winter and then uh, during freshet you have this uh this breakup and river ice can um, erode banks significantly. Okay, um, if there is like, like uh, I'm not sure about uh, about the um, the effect because um, I mean the 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 data that we have on hand says that uh, the ice breakup takes place earlier but it does not say anything about the the impact on on erosional processes so it's another one of those um, open open aspects like to to answer properly the question one needs data 
to see how much river ice in in relative terms uh, has choked rivers up in the in the last few decades and see if it has diminished or increased and you know like uh, we need a completely separate analysis to try to answer that question like at this point i i we acknowledge that river ice is an important factor in determining erosion of channel banks especially during breakup but we don't have the data at hand to to um you know make predictions yeah that's interesting so the erosion um happens more upstream i would assume right and if there would be less ice in the future and less erosion would potentially it yes maybe? so that yeah that would be the hypothesis to test that would be the you know the logical construction uh, and that's usually where one starts you know right that we we yeah. we have a logical hypothesis and and we want to we want to test it and see and see if it holds or not so could it mean that then basically if you have less erosion coming down the river like less sediments that downstream you know the the riverbeds would be more hollow and deeper over time yeah. and faster yeah. streaming through yeah. and less nutrients maybe yeah and... that would be okay. that would be uh the that would logically be the the hypothesis yes yeah that's interesting would it always mean that something bad or would it mean also could it have like a counteracting effect to less rain and drying out of riverbeds that you just have more water com coming through so that it's less stagnant in different places so there would be less evaporation and maybe more water available or could there be also a counter you know because we talked about before that kind of a system these systems have ways to cope like they have a certain amount of resiliency that we don't take into account could that be also a resilience um coping mechanism that we don't think of before like does everything mean it will be worse or could some things mean that things will balance yeah out? again like we we uh, we try to we try to explain landscape processes just in terms of functionality like we we were trying to stay in a way from 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 better or worse um you know we we want to understand how the landscape works so it, it and and that's that's important because exactly for the reason that you've explained right so we you don't know until you have a full picture of the environmental response, you don't know what's going to be detrimental and what's going to be instead, um, you know, potentially beneficial over the long term, right? So, I, I can't, I can't really answer at length to that. Like we, my, my scope is to more understand the landscape dynamics, and then, uh, and then my my work will ensure and inform responses um, and, and adaptation strategies. Yeah, thank you so much. I think that's a good end, like ending <laughs> that we don't know what yeah. will be good and what will be bad. 
and we have to be careful of making too fast like assumptions and put our human labeling to it yeah i guess yeah but and um i think that's really interesting to think about do you think just one more my more philosophical question do you think we have kind of this tendency as humans to preserve how things were when we were kids like to preserve memories maybe pictures and open the landscape and and we have a hard time letting go maybe like yeah in- yeah i think from in terms of um motivation for research yes indeed like we, we i think we tend to gravitate back to the good experiences that we had in our past and that may influence you know not necessarily the results but the the choices that one takes as to what to study i think that there's definitely inheritance in in that sense yeah thank you for that it's interesting to think about and that's why it's so important i think to talk about research from different research areas and to people like you because we can learn a lot about our own biases conception and we get back to actual facts yeah (laughs) because there's so much out there right in the media about current research days and what things mean but i think going back to talking with people like you that are actually doing the research grounds us back to actual facts and and what we can do with the actual facts yeah. so that's why i'm so glad you took the time to share your data knowledge with us it was a really wonderful discussion and i hope you you had an okay time at least and um, and we wish you all the best for your future research. And we will be curious to learn about the future because there are so many unknowns. So it's really interesting. Well, likewise, thank you very much for the invitation. It was a pleasure to speak to you all. Yeah, thank you. And um, yeah, as I said, if people in the future or now still have some questions, write me. I'll try uh, to answer them and um and uh, yeah just reach out i hope to hear you all again um we have a science newsroom on wednesday uh, where we go over articles new articles that came out and uh, alessandro it was such a pleasure enjoy the rest of your evening thank you and pleasure I... was mine wonderful Okay, I'll close the room in three, two, one. Bye, everyone. Thank you.